0: Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, class. <laughs> I want to welcome you to uh, the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. I'm Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato, and with my colleagues Ben Friedman and Chris Preble, a co chair of Cato's Strategic Counterterrorism initi- Initiative, uh, which is made possible by the generosity of the Atlantic Philanthropies with additional support from the Open Society Institute. We're very pleased this morning to have an excellent group of experts with us and, later this morning, a a top counterterrorism official in the Obama administration to address, to help us suss out President Obama's first year in counterterrorism. A year ago today, many of us were here starting the second day of a two-day conference in which we explored terrorism and counterterrorism and worked to to shape and predict the Obama administration's counterterrorism strategy. You can review that conference, I urge you to do so, at cato.org slash counterterrorism. We had over 30 experts in terrorism, uh, security, risk management, and communications. And like today, we had many, many people. Uh, Thank you, those of you who have come back. uh, Thank you for bearing with us as we test the, the, the capability of our conference facilities and our staff. When we met before, I took the liberty of framing counterterrorism Uh, in a way that I think probably simplifies or oversimplifies the work of many terrorism experts, I said that overreaction is the key goal of terrorism. Overreaction delivers gifts to terrorists when it, one, drains the blood and treasure of victim states, when it drives neutral or undecided parties to the side of terrorists, and when it confirms terrorist narratives about ideology and about good and evil. Overreaction can delegitimize the victim state in the eyes of important audiences. <coughs> Excuse me. This framing has helped me as I continue to think about terrorism and counterterrorism. <coughs> I hope it's been helpful to others, and I hope perhaps it might be helpful to you as you think with us about the past year in Obama's counterterrorism policies and the coming years. Putting my own views aside, last year I said. What matters is that the incoming administration should have a counterterrorism strategy. How, in the view of the incoming administration, does terrorism advance the goals of terrorists, and what are those goals? How will the new administration seek to ensure that terrorists do not achieve their goals? How will the new administration defang terrorism as a strategy? And what are the new administration's communications plans for terrorism generally, and in the event, heaven forbid, of a terrorist attack? We didn't get direct answers in the form of a published strategy, but we got more than we wanted in terms of terrorism events. The silver lining, of course, is that our society can learn and grow more familiar with the problem of terrorism, and that we here today can develop some good indirect evidence, at least, of what the administration's approach to counterterrorism is. Our panel of experts represents a variety of perspectives that will help us review Uh, year one of the Obama administration in counterterrorism. From from your left to right, we have Clark Irvin, director of the Aspen Institute's Homeland Security Program. Michael German, a former FBI agent, now serving as Policy Counsel on National Security, Immigration, and Privacy at the American Civil Liberties Union. Priscilla Lewis, co-director of the U.S. in the World Initiative. Jacob Shapiro, assistant professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. And soon to be joining us, still in the middle of his commute, is Paul Piller, former CIA official, now professor and director of studies, of the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University. He will be here within the next uh, five to ten minutes, I, I do believe. It would take a, a lot of the morning to lay out all the credentials of this fine group. So instead of doing that, we've, we've put together a bio sheet that many of you have picked up. If you didn't manage to pick it up, I'm sure a neighbor of yours did, and you can take a look at it. As I said, after our session this morning, Daniel Benjamin will give us some direct evidence of the administration's thinking and plans, especially in light of the Christmas bombing attempt, and we're very appreciative that he could join us. As an administrative note, uh, between our session and Mr. Benjamin's talk, we'll have a brief, brief recess in order to reset the stage. Uh, You can use that to stretch your legs or freshen up a bit, but uh, don't go very far because we'll begin uh, in, in, in short order with Dan Benjamin. Now when we started planning this event, I conceived of a relatively simple structure for our conversation, that we would look back on the year just passed, look forward with our prescriptions for the next year and the rest of President Obama's service, and then go to Q&A. Obviously, well, Christmas brought us an unwanted gift, if you will. And so we're going to start with, with a discussion of our top lines, uh, what, what, what our takeaways are from the Christmas bombing attempt, then look back at the first year of the Obama administration. Look ahead and go to Q and A with you. If I hurry up and stop talking, we'll have about 25 minutes for each. So let's let's turn to that first question, and, and we'll, just, we'll just go down the row, and I'll join you there, seated uh, panel. What for each of you is the is the takeaway from the Christmas attempt? Please.
1: All right. Uh, thank you very much, Jim. I uh, would begin this way. I think that uh, uh, largely the administration's response to the Christmas Day incident is commendable. I would have preferred for the president to have come out sooner. Uh, It was three days, of course, as we know, before the president made a statement. I think in times like this, uh, the American people want to see the commander-in-chief, particularly one as articulate and as analytical as President Obama. That said, once he did come out, and I think there were four appearances subsequently, both the tone and the content, it seems to me, of everything the president said and announced was exactly right Let me talk about that specifically. You know, I'm reminded of what William F. Buckley once said, that he'd rather be governed by the first 100 people in the Boston phone book than the faculty of Harvard. And by that he meant there's a lot of wisdom that resides in ordinary Americans. Everything the president announced, uh, assigning a person in the intelligence community to be responsible for following up on all priority leads, uh, more uh, wide sharing of information within the intelligence and security community, checking the visa status of known or suspected terrorists, and, of course, revoking visas when there are active visas in place, tightening watch list procedures to make it easier when there, is reason- when there are reasonable grounds to believe that someone is a terrorist or may be a terrorist, to put that person at least on the selectee list, which would subject him or her to enhanced screening, and perhaps even under certain circumstances. And I would argue those circumstances existed in the Abdul Muttalab case on the no-fly list. And of course, enhanced screening protocols and the wider deployment of screening technology, which we can talk about whole body imaging, other such things later during the course of the program. All of that made perfect sense. One needn't be a counterterrorism expert or have a security clearance in order to conceive of them, which leads to the second point, and that is, since they're so obvious and commonsensical, why are they just now being instituted uh, nine years almost after 9-11, eight years after the creation of TSA, seven years after the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and what became the National Counterterrorism Center, it was initially the Terrorist Threat Integration Center, and six years after the creation of the Directorate of National Intelligence. And if, there are, if there's anything good, it seems to me, that comes out of the Christmas Day incident, uh, aside from, of course, the obvious, the fact that the plot was foiled, not, of course, through uh, our own government, but through the heroism of the passengers and the ineptitude of the terrorists, it's that it, it, the incident, has served, again, to concentrate the national mind on the urgency of the terrorist threat. And I would close uh... with two additional quick thoughts it, it's one of the other good things that the administration did and there's no indication that they will change their mind about this as these investigations continue and as these reviews continue is the administration did announce, did not announce that there are going to be any further organizational ch- uh, changes that is the typical response of government when there are huge crises like this uh... it seems to me that we have the organizational structures that we need Uh, What is lacking, and the administration's been vague about this, is accountability. The president commendably took responsibility, and of course, ultimately, the president is responsible for everything that goes right and wrong in his government. It's the right thing to do morally. It's politically smart as well. President Kennedy famously took responsibility for the Bay of Pigs fiasco, and it proved to be enormously popular for him politically. But as a practical matter, the president does not run his own government. It is people in the intelligence and security bureaucracy and in the instance who do, and it is ultimately they, it seems to me, who should be held accountable. The final thing I would say, which leads to the top line, is I acknowledge the potential danger of overreaction, and I think there are times during the course of the year since 9/11 when our government has overreacted. <coughs> a good example of that is the Insure's program when. Muslim men, Arab men between 16 and 45 were rounded up and incarcerated for uh, a long period of time. Gitmo is another example of that. But uh, I am more concerned about the other reaction, uh, which is underreaction. And I think largely since 9-11, we have tended to think that the threat has gone away. Uh, And again, this incident serves to concentrate the mind, and I hope and expect that the Obama administration will have new urgency to counterterrorism as a result of it.
2: Uh, Thanks very much to Jim and to Cato for inviting me. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come. Um, You know, I I think one of the things that the Christmas incident shows is that our intelligence community is still dysfunctional in uh, ways that were far too similar to the the dysfunction that uh, uh, provided the opportunity for 9-11 to occur. And I think that's something that, that we should really focus on, that this is still a problem of the correct management of information. You know, after 9-11, <coughs> the, the issue was it, it, um, or, originally that we weren't collecting the right information. You, you know, you have to remember after 9-11, it really took a couple of years before what the government actually knew came out. So in those first couple of years, what we did is unleash the collection capability of the government and, and you know, allowed suspicionless collection. And I think what this incident shows is that when you gather a lot of unfiltered hay and make the haystacks bigger, it doesn't help find those few needles that need to be found. And I think that is really something that we should, uh, we should take a real serious review of rather than sort of trying to create knee-jerk reactions. Um, and, you know, pretty much for the last almost year, I guess, uh, the Obama administration has embraced this concept of suspicionless collection. There was an opportunity to reform the Patriot Act, uh, and the administration pretty much uh, stood behind uh, having it um, uh, uh, you know, put back in pretty much the way it is. You know, Pretty much any of the surveillance powers have not really been rec- recalibrated, and one of the most disappointing things that comes out of, of this is the statement that the terrorist watch list system works. Well, if there's any better evidence that the terrorist watch list system doesn't work, uh, the Christmas incident should be it. But you don't even have to look there. The, in May, the Department of Justice Inspector General issued a report, you know, indicating that there were huge problems with the terrorist screening center watch listing process uh, that created error rates as high as 35% that, you know, there were 1.1 million separate identities put on it, and it's obviously a broken system, and, and that needs to be completely repaired. And, and to get to why that is a broken system, I think, it is, is uh, very important. Um, and, you know, I think part of the problem is, I think what al-Qaeda has learned, or what other terrorist groups have learned, is they don't even have to succeed in a terrorist event anymore. You know, they can claim credit for a failed terrorist attempt and it gets the same reaction and and you know I think one of the things I think president obama did well was very quickly get the facts out which was different from the 9/11 as far as what were the actual breakdowns that allowed this to occur so that we can hopefully have an adult conversation about what needs to be done to repair those problems rather than sort of knee jerk problems are uh, solutions to problems that don't exist. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the statements that have come out of the intelligence community uh, and, and sort of the, the options that were given for what to repair don't reflect those problems. You know, things like body scanning, things like, you know, adding more names to the terrorist watch list. Well, if you look at what actually happened, those are not necessarily the best solutions or, or even adequate solutions for what the problem is. So... You know, I hope that, it, that we have an opportunity to completely review what is still wrong with the intelligence community so we can actually get to solutions that, that help us and don't help our enemies. Um, and, and whether it's overreaction or underreaction, I, I think what we want to make sure is the reaction is correct to address the threat as it exists rather than as, as you know, different either political or commercial interests would, would mythologize it.
3: add my thanks to those of the other two panelists who have spoken and and say also that I'm very honored to be included in this panel. Uh, I come at this set of issues from a rather different perspective. Uh, The work that the organization I co-direct pursues focuses among other things on the impact of fear on public thinking about terrorism and on public thinking about appropriate responses to terrorism and on the um, opportunities available to uh, political and other opinion leaders to communicate about terrorism with the American public in ways that helped create a climate of public opinion in which it's possible to build public support for constructive far-sighted balanced um, uh, reasonable approaches to to terrorism um, so I do come at this from a different uh, perspective um, I hope that the kinds of observations I'll make will will add to our conversation, and I, I think that they will because, uh, in a very real sense, uh, terrorism acts of terrorism themselves are strategic communications, and our responses to those acts uh, need to be thought of in terms of communications as well. So there is a there's a, a, a connection there. Um, I think, as I look back on the um, Christmas uh, attempt. Uh, For us, it's certainly a reminder of what a perfectly engineered manipulation of the body politic acts of terrorism are. Uh, They lead to a kind of an emotional hijacking of the brain, which takes place literally at a neurological level, where a primitive uh, circuitry in the brain is activated, which uh, actually suppresses the action of the distinctly human part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is the site of uh, our ability to retain abstract concepts, to be able to think in a farsighted fashion, and also um, very central to our ability to feel empathy for other people. So some of the very kinds of things that might lend a public to be able to support farsighted and Uh, responsible approaches to terrorism are literally suppressed by the fear that terrorism promotes. Um, Terrorism also activates some very basic schemas that make us think that extreme measures are necessary. We feel that we're in an emergency in which it's okay to and necessary to give up some of our principles or rights uh, in order to um, uh, achieve uh, some greater degree of safety. Um, It also uh, gives us the feeling of being in a state of war which has its own um, implications. Among them, the stereotyping and collectivization of the enemy. When you're in a war, the enemy is a group and not individuals. So that's another schema that gets activated. And um, in addition, it exploits our tendency to, um, to circle the wagons and to look to authoritarian leaders for guidance. So... There are some very profound effects of terrorism on public thinking that have to do with fear, that have to do with the activation of uh, a a sense of being at war. So for us, as we look at the president and the administration's response to the Christmas attack, one set of questions has to do with whether when leaders embrace or otherwise acquiesce to fear-inducing frameworks within which to understand events like a war, Is it going to be possible for those same leaders simultaneously to build public support for far-sighted, sensible, uh, responsible approaches to terrorism? And a a point that follows from that being the notion, does acquiescing, acquiescing to the notion of a war also make it impossible for the public to understand some of those measures like increased security Screenings at airports for visitors from Muslim majority countries, is it possible for the public to understand that in any terms other than a war on Islam, which is a notion that the president has worked very hard and appropriately to reject and to um, put outside of the picture? So I think, to summarize, I think for us, um, the question would be has the president and his administration managed to create a continuity between some of his earlier statements of principle and some of his earlier um, public statements like the Cairo speech and some of the responses that are being uh, developed and taken in, in the wake of the, of the Christmas event. So we see this creation of some continuity and a larger picture among all of the elements of the president's uh, counterterrorism strategy as a really important challenge before him at this point.
1: So...
4: Uh- Jim, I'll I'll just reiterate my thanks, and since I feel a little underqualified compared to some of my co-panelists, I'll try and be be very brief. I think there are two things I want to highlight. One plays off your opening statement, Jim, which is that uh, the danger is overreaction. There's never been a time in history when there's a shortage of idealistic young men and women willing to sacrifice themselves for a cause. And so if each of them can goad us into new and more costly security measures, we have a very serious problem. And so just uh, to to put some perspective on that, I think the other thing I want to highlight is it's very easy to look at the Christmas bombing and say, oh, there was a failure here, right? We did not, he was allowed to get on the plane. Uh, But there's also a deep success here in the following respect. Um, The security systems in terms of intelligence and screening that our government has put in place since 9-11 meant that the group conducting this ended up with a relatively incompetent not that highly skilled or well-trained operative, right? There wasn't the space where he could really be developed, certainly in the way the 9-11 hijackers were. And the screening systems that were in place forced them into using a very cumbersome and ultimately ineffective device, right? That that's what gave the passengers time to disrupt the plot. So we can look at this and say, oh, this was a terrible failure, or we can look at it and say, compared to what would have been possible five to ten years ago, this is, uh, we've, we've come quite a long way.
0: Paul Pillar, welcome. Thank you. I, want to, I want to point out to, to you and all, all of our audience that we have a policy analysis by our colleague Randall O'Toole that deals with uh, why we're
5: sitting in gridlock so much of the time. So, firepower. Please, your top line. I apologize to everyone for arriving late. My colleagues have made some excellent points. I will make two observations relative to the Christmas bombing or attempted bombing, uh, very briefly. One is that uh, no matter how assiduously we try to reform bureaucracies and organizations and no matter how many heads we find a role uh, such incidents will happen. And when we look backwards at something like this with all of the blinding light of hindsight in which certain things seem to be inexcusable and other things seem to be crystal clear that they were dots that should have been put together, we collectively forget that in the real time in which uh, government agencies and bureaucracies and officials have to deal with these fragments of information. It looks very, very different. We've been through this all before. And this latest round of the hindsight-filled recriminations uh, in some, to some extent got even silly, I would say. I mean, references to things like uh, a communications intercept that makes, makes a mention of an unnamed Nigerian as something that people should have jumped all over. The population of Nigeria is 150 million. Uh, That doesn't exactly narrow down the search for terrorists very much, does it? My second observation is that despite that reality, there is this extremely strong resistance to accept it. We do indulge in the hindsight. Um, And it's partly driven by the psychological sort of factors that Priscilla mentioned, and quite clearly it's also driven by the politics. And we saw it in spades, over these last couple of weeks with regard to trying to make political hay out of the latest incident.
0: Do any of you have comments on what others have said? I'm interested in having a conversation among
1: you. Um, who, who's got something more to say? Please. I, I do. Um, a number of quick things. One, I completely agree with Paul, for whom I have enormous respect, that we have to acknowledge and we have to continue to underscore that our government can do everything right and we could still have a terror attack. The odds are always against us. The odds are always in terrorist favor. There's no question about that. That said, it seems to me that does not and shouldn't be used to excuse preventable failures here. And one of the additional things, it seems to me, that's commendable about the president's response to this, which I didn't say at the beginning is, uh, unlike the typical government response, or maybe I did say it, but it, it's worth underscoring, here the president, in contrast to the initial statement on Secretary Napolitano's part, which she says was misconstrued, and I take her at her word, but she said the system worked, the president was consistent in saying the system failed, and it was a catastrophic failure, a potentially catastrophic failure, and that there were dots that could have been connected and should have been connected that were not just clear in hindsight, but were clear at the time. Just a couple of quick examples of that, and to mention one in particular that Paul mentioned, the NSA intercepts that... Uh, a Nigerian was being prepared for attacks in in the United States here on the homeland. My understanding is that at least one of those intercepts, I think there were several, specifically mentioned Umar Farouk, the first two names of the terrorist. If you put that together with the fact that this suspect's own father, and not just any guy off the street as it's been as it's been said by some in the intelligence community, but a respected Nigerian banker went physically to the embassy, talked to not one agency, but two, the State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency. And it wasn't a missing persons report. He said, I'm concerned about my son increasing radicalization. He's in Yemen. Again, the NSA intercept his background. Followed those meetings up with written communications and telephone calls. We know that Yemen is a hotbed of terrorism. Apparently, the intelligence community didn't conceive of the possibility that al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula might attack the homeland, which it seems to me is another failure and a failure of imagination. And then we also know about al-Qaeda's fixation on on aviation system. All of that, it seems to me, uh, not just in retrospect, but before the fact ought to have been enough to put us on high alert. And that certainly is the president's view, as he has said repeatedly. Another thing I would say is that John Brennan was famously the White House counterterrorism advisor. Uh, was, has acknowledged that he was briefed by Prince Nayef himself, the Saudi counterterrorism official, who was nearly assassinated by an assassin who used PETN, one of the explosives used in this device, hidden on the body. Uh, and this information was not shared, he says, with the FAA and with TSA because this was an assassination attempt in a building. seems to me that uh, we have much of the failure of imagination that predated the 9/11 plot. So, just again to, to sum sum this up, uh, this was a preventable failure. And if we don't take it to be a preventable failure and learn from it, it seems to me we'll have a, a failure in the future that is not potentially catastrophic, but is but is catastrophic in fact.
0: I think it's a it's a close call. But is it is it 2020 hindsight, Paul Pillar, Mike German? No
2: um, oh, uh, uh, And I also will agree with you. But the, the problem I think is is that that wasn't the promise that was made. The promise that was made after 9-11 was, you give up your rights to your electronic records to the Patriot Act, your, your right of privacy over those records, and we will protect you. Through the FISA amendments, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act amendments, you give up right, privacy rights to your international communications, and that's the way we'll protect you. You give us billions of dollars. Uh, you give us unfettered authority. Uh, you take away the burden of oversight, and that way we'll protect you. And now we find that that was all a wasted effort that, surprise, surprise, us giving up our privacy uh, doesn't help the government actually find real terrorists. It just creates a lot of of information that the government has to then filter through in which the very important pieces of information get lost.
5: The issue is not whether we are going to pin, pin the label failure Again, in hindsight, and hindsight's the only thing we've got, of course, looking backwards on a particular incident. And I don't differ with the details that, that, that Clark mentioned at all. The issue is, uh, our failures, even if we had say, yes, it's a failure, are they going to happen anyway, despite all the reforms and everything else? And I, I agree 100% with Mike. We heard all this before. Uh, we had this huge fix five years ago. Uh, with the creation of a couple of new bureaucracies, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the National Counterterrorism Center, and that's what was supposed to prevent this sort of thing from happening. So it's basically the same thing with a somewhat different uh, list of bureaucratic players, and that strongly suggests to me that the answer to the question of, are we going to have failures, even if we want to definitely pin the label of failure on what happened a couple of weeks ago, Are we going to have such failures despite all the efforts at reform? And the answer to that is yes.
3: I just wanted to make maybe a a sobering observation that while I agree with the assessments that I'm hearing here, I fear that the narrative that the public will take away from this is not that we gave up so much and it turns out it was a waste. But that recently things were allowed to get lax. And that's why this happened. And, uh, it, and what has in fact happened in the administration is that there's been a revelation and a wake-up call... And that's, that's another set of reasons why I said in my earlier remarks that uh, we think, my colleagues and I think, that it's critically important for the President to be able to draw a through line from his earlier statements of principle and from the kinds of comments that he made at, in, in the Cairo speech uh, through to the current policy decisions, if that's Possible. Otherwise, the narrative that is going to be reinforced is, unfortunately, at least there's a good probability that the narrative will be one of um, a kind of a revelation and a, and a wake-up call.
0: Let me, let me raise a question that, that we didn't really touch on here in the early going, and that's the question of the, the status of al-Qaeda, if you will. This morning in the New York Times, Scott Shane does a news, news analysis where he says, the term al-Qaeda used as a catch-all in many of the plots blurs important distinctions. By most accounts, apart from possibly the Zazi case, None of the 2009 cases appears to be directly tied to Al Qaeda Central, the uh, the Pakistan-based group led by Bin Laden. Uh, to the extent we have comments, maybe uh, maybe Jake Shapiro, what do we what do we learn from Al Qaeda? What's the current thinking on Al Qaeda?
4: Um, I mean, my my sense is that there are uh, two things going on that blur the lines. So there's a coherent organization that's the inheritor of the organization that attacked us. Oh. Uh, that conducted the 9-11 attack, uh, and they are still uh, uh, operating, although how much ability they have to do more than kind of encourage people is not clear. Uh, But then you have groups kind of in many areas adopting the name because it now has a certain cachet within uh, the, the the kind of Islamist extremist community, so it's useful for fundraising purposes and getting recruits. But it's also very useful for governments Right? If you label the group and events in your country as al-Qaeda-related, uh, the United States government kind of is strongly incentivized to come to your side with aid, intelligence assistance, military aid, and things like that. So there are these factors which play in to kind of magnify the sense that there's one coherent organization out there, um, uh, and there's not. I mean, one of the interesting streams of uh, kind of uh, reporting that's come out about um, the, uh, the attacker who uh, killed the CIA agents in Afghanistan recently, is that that may have been more related to uh, one of the Pakistan Taliban organizations than Tal Qaeda, per se. And I you know obviously don't know the details. But there's a great deal of complexity there that's just incredibly hard to communicate um, anywhere outside kind of specialist uh, circles.
1: I would add to that by, by saying the following. It, it seems to me we now really have the worst of all possible worlds. Um, after nine eleven, commendably, the government put al-Qaeda central. Uh, bin Laden, Zawahiri, the top leadership of al-Qaeda, the people who conceived of and, and carried out the nine eleven attack on the run. But our focus on Iraq for uh, a number of years, there's no question, but that, but that, that took us, uh, took our eye off the ball and allowed Al Qaeda Central to regroup. And so we all know now that they're somewhere along the Afghan Pakistan border. They're still in business. We still haven't found them. And they still provide at least inspirational support to terrorists around the world. And everything that I've read, both unclassified and classified, suggests that they have again, again regained their ability to uh, pose an operational threat to the United States. In addition to that, we now see increasingly franchises operating around the world with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula being but the latest and potentially most lethal example. But there are also examples in Somalia, in uh, North Africa, certainly, uh, al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. And also there is concern about al-Qaeda in West Africa. There have been examples of activity in, in Mali, for example, in Ghana, uh, that's why Africom was stood up by DoD to focus on the potential terror threat from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and in addition to that, we have obviously these homegrown plots. I don't. I don't think we should necessarily infer from the fact that there seems to have be, there seems to have been an increasing number of them this this past year since September 11 that necessarily homegrown terrorism is a a rising threat. It may well be that the number just happens to be a coincidence. But the point is, it is a threat. And I've never believed the conventional wisdom that we in the United States have less of a potential homegrown threat in the Muslim community than is the case in Europe because our Muslim community is better integrated, better educated. That is certainly true. But I think one of the things to take away from bin Laden, from Zawahiri. Uh, and from Abdul Muttalab, for example, is that uh, terrorists come in all sizes and stripes and socioeconomic circumstances, and it's not necessarily the case that if one is economically affluent and educated that that person is not led to terrorism. So we have a metastasizing problem of terrorism and one about which we should be increasingly concerned, it seems to me. I just want
4: to take exception with with one thing Clark said, which is the The term metastasizing carries with it the connotation of a threat that is something that can uh, kill you. So in a human being, we think about metastasizing cancer as the stage before you die, right? This is not a threat that can seriously damage our society, right, absent our overreaction to it. So I would agree spreading perhaps maybe, although the kind of quantitative evidence is unclear, and certainly kind of overall rates of terrorism uh, have not gone up substantially once you drop uh, Iraq and Afghanistan from the analysis, which is a very different thing because the ways that we count terrorist attacks there capture lots of civil war stuff. So once you drop that out, there's no quantitative evidence that kind of overall rates of terrorism are increasing. And the amount of damage that these types of events are doing is not kind of going up dramatically uh, in any meaningful way. And so spreading... Yes, metastasizing, I think, carries a connotation that, um, as Mike described and as, John, as Jim kind of set us out, plays into the hands, in some sense, of the political
1: goals. Uh, i just respond to that boy. just really quickly. Please, I yeah. promise I'll be quick. With all due respect to Jake, uh, it seems to me that that thinking is very, very dangerous. That is a pre-9-11 mindset in a post-9-11 world. And I'm really surprised that there's anybody who can make that argument with a straight face in light of the Christmas Day incident. Metastasizing is the right word to use precisely because metastasizing suggests that it can kill. Terrorists are at work outside this country and inside this country today to exceed the number of people killed on 9-11. Their ultimate goal is the acquisition of a weapon of mass destruction which would be a game-changer for this country, which would pose an existential threat to this country. And if we don't recognize that, it seems to me we are laying ourselves open for the ultimate catastrophe.
2: And, and I'll just uh, defend Jacob on this. Uh, I was you hoping know, this would start <laughs> a better <disaster>.
1: discussion.
2: <laughs> you know, as he said in his, his, his original uh, words, um, you know, th- there has never been a shortage of, you know, misguided idealized uh, world changers out there who, for whatever their purposes, have used violence as a methodology for moving their vision of the world forward, whether that's, you know, and that is never going to go away. You know, in fact, there have been weapons of mass destruction found right here in the United States. There was, you know, all the components of a dirty bomb together with the instructions to to put that together uh, in Maine and a chemical weapon was found in Noonday, Texas. This, the the one in Maine was found last year. Anybody know about it? Right, and this is a pretty learned audience. The one in 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 Texas was found in 2003, I think, 2004. Why wouldn't you have heard about these? Well, because it was a white supremacist in Maine and a right wing anti government militia person in Texas. So you know. We can't talk, you know, we have to have an adult conversation about what this threat it really is. And the only place I disagree with Jacob is the idea that, that because terrorism is a complex problem and al-Qaeda is a complex and concept and entity, that only experts can really get down to the bottom of it. I think I have a lot of confidence in the American public when they're given uh, reliable information. You know, and, and I think the conflation of what the threat is is a huge part of the problem of our reaction and, and unless we can start to have that conversation where we don't you know, call al- al-Qaeda in Iraq the same thing as, as you know, bin Laden's al-Qaeda and, and even bin Laden's al-Qaeda the same thing post-9-11 that it was pre-9-11 you know, much less every other group out there who is like a Rolex that you buy on the corner not really very much like a Rolex um, and, and we do have, you know, and, and <clears throat> part of where I'll criticize John Brennan's remarks, uh, in the press conference, he was given the opportunity to present that, you know, one of the reporters asked, what's the why here? Why would this 23 year old young man be willing to sacrifice himself? Uh, you know, wh- why? And his response was Al Qaeda is an organization that is dedicated to murder and wanton slaughter of innocents. I'm not sure that's really a thoughtful response. And then he went on. Al Qaeda has the agenda of destruction and death. Al Qaeda is just determined to carry out attacks here in the homeland. You know, I don't think that's helpful. I, I think we can't. You know, because one of the things the government should realize about the Christmas attack: this kid was what 14 years old on 9/11. You know, raised in wealth in in a country that wasn't really part of the conflict that created Al Qaeda why in the world, you know, we should be concerned about why this 23-year-old kid over the last eight years has decided he personally is an enemy of the United States of America. And we should have an adult conversation about, about how terrorism actually works because terrorism is a methodology, you know, and it's what it, I have a book about this that I talk about their methodology. And part of their methodology is to do exactly what they're doing and it requires us re- reacting in exactly the way we're reacting. And if we just simply read their methodology, it will give us a roadmap to what not only what we should do, but what we shouldn't do. And a lot of what we're doing now is what we shouldn't do.
0: I, I told our panel that we'd be doing a good job if I had to break up fist fights during the <laughs> conversation. We saw we started to see early flashes of that. So I think things are going well. As we continue, I want to I want to draw our attention back to the Obama administration and maybe broaden it. We've been talking fairly broadly already, but maybe broaden it. Uh, obviously the Christmas attempt wasn't the only Uh, terrorism event of the past year. We had the arrest of uh, Najibul Azazi, uh, David Headley, Fort Hood shooting, obviously, and ongoing events in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Guantanamo. And and I'm sure I've I've missed a few things. But let's continue, again, focusing on the actions of the administration in response to all the year's events. Paul, did you want
5: to... Well, maybe I can kind of segue into that from what I was going to uh, say in response to some of the uh, most recent couple of comments, Jim. You know, the... Labels, metaphors, whether it's metastasism, war on terror, they do more harm than good with regard to understanding the phenomenon we're dealing with. Al-Qaeda, the name, does more harm than good in making us understand that because there's this tendency to think of one unified organization. Um, That's not the case. The the Scott Shane piece this morning in The Times is a very good uh, uh, corrective to that on the domestic incidents that have occurred, and I agree with Clark in highlighting these, and this gets directly to uh, your mention of it, Jim. Um, what we are seeing are individuals, basically self-radicalized individuals, who are the ones taking the initiative to seek out groups, to seek out training, to seek out help. That was true of the Northern Virginia Five. It was true of Najibullah Zazi. It was true of Hassan. Um, so that puts the lie in my view to the concept that the main thing we're worrying about here is a group that is the center of instigation and action that is seeking out, you know, putting its tentacles out and drawing these people in be they domestic actors here in the United States or those overseas. The threat and even putting it in the singular the threat is is misleading but I'll do it anyway Um, is very um, uh, multi-sided. It is not just one group. Uh, the experts get bogged down into these debates about just what is the status of Al Qaeda Central, and it's 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 somewhat of a diversion because even if you agree, yes, there's still an organization there, there's a significant threat. It is only part of the threat, and the manifestations we have seen, all these incidents that you enumerated, Jim, are basically not part of that. They are individuals uh, seeking out other groups, and in, including individuals here in the United States.
0: Putting you on the spot, Priscilla. Labels, labels, communications about this. How does that affect uh, public perception and public policy?
3: Well, certainly, as I hinted earlier, the label "war" is an incredibly powerful one. Uh, not just because it's a label, but because it describes a state of mind and a way of thinking, right, that that shapes the way people think, um, not only about themselves, but about, you know, our kind of collective responses to challenges like this. Um, but I was thinking as I listened to this exchange um, that it's not, it, it's not absolutely unheard of to have to figure out how to talk about a very serious threat without paralyzing. Um, and again, my focus is on how you speak, to the American public, right? So it's not uncommon, it's not unheard of to have to talk about something that's very frightening in a way that doesn't paralyze people and that enables them to understand why extreme overreactions might be problematic. So I was trying to think how to apply some of what one might have learned from other situations to this because I I agree that the, the solution can't be to avoid stating truths if if there are indeed... Truths that can be agreed upon. And I, I think there are maybe two ways of thinking about this. One of them is the importance of being able to point to a potentially positive outcome. So, even as we talk about the seriousness of this threat, can we conjure for the public the possibility of an improvement? Obviously, not a perfect a state of perfect safety, but, but a, a, a potentially positive outcome. And then the second observation in this context is the importance of being able to evoke a bigger picture. One way to get at this is to, is to dig down deeper. In other words, you break up the problem, right? You break up the category. It's not terrorism in some huge monolithic sense. It's particular groups. It's even particular individuals. That's very important. The, but the other possibility is to kind of look outward, Uh, one of the messages and framing approaches that we've uh, commissioned, we commissioned some qualitative and exploratory testing into uh, narratives that might promote public thinking, uh, constructive public thinking about terrorism in a state of fear. And and we've done this in a variety of different contexts in in the context of different projects. Um, But one of the kind of promising narratives had to do with helping people understand that while there is a small and very dangerous group of organizations and individuals who do indeed mean us serious harm, the vast majority of people around the world neither hate us nor love us. They're waiting to see how we behave before they make their decisions. And the notion of how important it is not to lose that undecided vote turns out to be a very persuasive and engaging way for people to think differently about this problem. And one of the things that it does is puts a larger circle around the problem of terrorism, because you're not focusing just on the group of fanatics, which could so easily be read to be the entire rest of Certainly the Muslim world, perhaps, or, you know, the sort of others out there are all fanatics. But in fact, it makes the others out there a much bigger circle of people who are reasonable, understandable, neutral. Um, So that may not prove to be the most effective message, but it gets at what I'm trying to point to here by way of the importance of being able to evoke a bigger picture, to put that very serious, very dire threat in a context that enables people to see it as not the only way of understanding or describing the world out there
0: let me let me bring it back to war um, and, and the administration because I think it, I think it was fairly clear in the early part of this year that the administration was going to issue the war notion uh, here in the wake of the Christmas attempt. Um, several times I think I've seen uh, the, the administration assuring the public that it does believe we're in a state of war. Uh, others, do you, do you see that same thing? Have you seen the same thing happening? Uh, and what do you think of it? Clark?
1: Well, you're quite right. The, in his last statement, uh, last Thursday, President uh, Obama went out of his way to say that we are at war, partly because, of course, he's been under political attack from Republicans, from conservatives for... in former Vice President Cheney's words, pretending that we're not at war. So the administration is beginning to emphasize this. What I'd say generally, and it gets back to your initial question about, you know, how the administration has done on counterterrorism this this past year is, I think the Bush administration overemphasized the war aspect of counterterrorism. And I think the Obama administration until now has underemphasized it. I think the proper strategy is to recognize that there are a number of elements to a successful counterterrorism strategy. We do have to kill and capture terrorists. There is a war aspect to it. Uh, In the Obama administration, uh, the degree to which they've continued that aspect of it really has been understated. People don't, generally, people don't realize that President Obama has really intensified the effort to go after al-Qaeda central in Afghanistan. And Pakistan, The drone strikes have really intensified under his tenure. He famously, after much deliberation, is increasing the number of troops placed in Afghanistan. And the number one objective for doing so, he says, is to prevent Afghanistan from again becoming a base for terrorism against the United States. There's also a law enforcement aspect to this. And commendably, it seems to me, the Obama administration has continued the Bush administration's strategy of moving law enforcement agencies in general, and the FBI in particular away from a primary focus on making cases that can stand up in court at the expense of foiling plots and putting the emphasis on foiling plots even at the end of the day you can't make a very effective criminal case. I think the Zazie case, the uh, Dallas case, and the Springfield Illinois case last year were all examples of that. Where the Bush administration didn't focus is where, as I said, the Obama administration has focused commendably and that is and this is what Priscilla is largely talking about, it seems to me, is is the struggle for the hearts and minds of the Muslim community here in the United States and around the world. The trying to answer this question that Mike raised of why, that I agree Brendan did not answer well. There, we've got to figure out why it is that young people, for some reason, are perverting the name of Islam and using it as an excuse to carry out terrorism against the United States. The President's Cairo speech, which Priscilla mentioned, was a commendable effort to talk in a new way to the Muslim world and to disabuse them of this notion that because the vast majority of Americans are not Muslim and do not adhere to the form of Islam that the terrorists want us to, that we are necessarily ipso facto enemies of Islam. So the point is, it's a multifaceted strategy. There are elements of each. And I think we do ourselves peril if we overemphasize any one of those aspects and underemphasize any one of those aspects.
0: So, Paul Piller, you're the co-author of a chapter in our forthcoming uh, book here at Cato uh, that deals with war, um, really use of military, and and the war theme. What uh, what do you have to add?
5: Uh, war is another one of those uh, words or concepts that does more to confuse, blur, and conflate than to explain. Uh, I absolutely agree with Clark in terms of you know, the, the main uh, driving mechanism here. It's a matter of responding to political criticism. Um, that's that's quite obvious in what the President was saying last week. Uh, but what neither the Obama administration nor its critics uh, have been specific about, and I'd really like either or both of them to be specific, is, okay, we're going to call something a war we're not going to call it a war. What exactly does that mean? Are we referring to the use of military force, which is the subject of what Chris and I wrote about? Are we referring to how we should handle detainees? There's another issue that, uh, where a lot of the dialogue seems to be put in this concept. Well, is it war or is it not? Should we try people in civilian court rather than military commissions? Those and other issues are ones that ought to be debated specifically on their merits. You know, there are pros and cons to be discussed about what sort of judicial procedure should be used um, with uh, captured, uh, captured terrorists. And simply batting the label back and forth, are we at war or not at war, doesn't clarify those issues at all. Um, Clark also you know, correctly, I think, points out the, the, ch- the change in emphasis with regard to the use of military force in the PAC-AF uh, theater uh, with regard to the drones. Let's be blunt about this, too. This is partly a political reaction. Uh, This is under the president, who was opposed to the Iraq war from the very beginning, and as a Democrat, fairly or unfairly, um, has to be concerned about not being vulnerable to the charge of being a wimp on national security matters generally or counterterrorism in general. So part of what we're seeing in the PAC-F theater is a response to that as well. I hasten to add that does not mean and here I also agree with Clark, that does not mean that this particular military instrument does not have a utility as one of the large number of in, uh, instruments, the others that my colleagues have mentioned, uh, are, are, are some of the others that must also be used. Um, so, yes, there's a, there's a discussion to be had here about the, the role of military force. Military force does have a role, but simply batting labels like war, war on terror, back and forth, does nothing to clarify the issue. I'd
4: like to kind of actually take, take Paul's uh, very good advice and try and lay out two cons of the, the war metaphor and then kind of uh, suggest maybe that, that someone else might be able to speak to the pros. But it seems to me that the war metaphor for, for what we're engaged in here abets terrorist goals in two very important ways. Uh, the first is it plays into the narrative that they're trying to construct with the populations they're appealing to of this ragged band of brave individuals fighting the mighty uh, power that's oppressing, oppressing their society. So it plays into that metaphor. Um, and it also uh, it, it helps their efforts, in some sense, to create fear and anxiety in our population as a way of kind of pushing us into political changes because it magnifies the sense of the threat and danger that they represent. And so it seems to me it has a couple very clear cons. I'm not as clear on what the advantages of calling this a war are.
2: And getting to the communication strategy, this was another thing during the press conference where uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Napolitano uh, was asking these rhetorical questions. We also need to look at the whole issue of what is called counter-radicalization. How do we communicate better American values and so forth in this country but also around the globe? Well, if the American value we want to communicate around the world is that if we don't like you, whatever country you're in, we're going to send a predator drone up and blow up you and your family, then we should probably be expecting some hostility as a result of that policy. You know, and and it's ironic that Secretary Napolitano is saying this. as she's implementing a tsa program that discriminates against people who from 14 nations by the way 13 of which are predominantly muslim nations and you know saying that we don't care if you're the most reliable trustworthy person in the world because you've come from that nation you're going to get extra screening period and and you know basically you know put forth a discriminatory policy and then wonder why They're not accepting that American values are our tolerance and acceptance of of all different ideas. So, you know, as a communication strategy, I think we're missing the boat there. In addition to this idea of war, that what is it we're actually accomplishing by this? And if we're creating more terrorists than we're killing, it's not an effective way of of approaching this problem.
0: A lot of what I'm hearing from many of you, uh, I think, may boil down to provocative weakness, Al-Qaeda has a plan they, they're, that's mapped to their success against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. <clears throat> While we sit around arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, uh, they're trying to break the United States. Why Why is what you're saying, you four especially, um, why is that not provocative weakness? Uh, people around the world are joining these groups because they see us being weak, uh, see us thinking twice about things. Shouldn't we be focusing perhaps
4: warlike on stomping this problem out? So, the, I think if you want to stomp out a problem that amounts to small groups of young men and women uh, doing things for abstract causes, uh, that's a quixotic quest. Right? There are always, always, always going to be folk who are willing to latch on to some abstract cause for a whole range of reasons and do crazy things. And if we set for ourselves the standard that, you know, uh, we need to kind of stamp all of that out, uh, that's just
2: not going to happen. And I think it also, uh, the statement, uh, misunderstands what the terrorist methodology is. They're not looking for a military victory. They don't expect a military victory. What they're trying to do is delegitimize the government they're attacking. To, to say that, that whatever you say your values are, that's actually a hypocritical statement. And I can, show, I can prove that by provoking you into making, act, taking actions that violate the values you say you appreciate, that violate the rule of law. Because once I, you know, it's very hard uh, as a terrorist to convince people the law doesn't matter. Right? I, I have to convince my followers, you, you can now become fugitives of justice and throw away the rest of your life because the law doesn't matter until I can prove it. And here's how I prove it. I go out and commit a terrorist act, and all of a sudden the government violates the normal restrictions on its activities and therefore creates a new law. Well, if the government can create new law, we can create new law. And that becomes a very pr- powerful messaging for developing new a new uh, generation of terrorists. And I'm, I'm afraid that's what we're in now, where it's this new generation that we're not, you know, we're still addressing a problem that existed pre 9 11 rather than looking at this as a comprehensive methodology that is trying to goad us into actions that are counterproductive. Just a
1: quick reaction to that, if I could, Jim. Um, it seems to me that Jake, in my judgment, overgeneralizes the issue and, and sets up a straw man. No one says that the goal here is to prevent small numbers of young men or women from pursuing quixotic causes. Of course you can't prevent that, but that's not what we're trying to do here. We're talking about an admittedly small number, thankfully, of men and women uh, who have uh, the goal of carrying out a catastrophic attack against the United States. That's the goal. And it seems to me that our objective, given that goal, should be agreeing with Paul that we can't prevent every terror incident. At least we should do what we can to prevent those that are preventable and to reduce the chance of a catastrophic attack. So that's why I think we need to redouble our efforts on preventing terrorists from getting their hands on weapons of mass destruction. The the other thing I'd say is that, um, um, you know, I want to emphasize that I'm not a jackbooted thug when it comes to this <laughs> issue. You know, I, as I said before, let me underscore again, there is a war aspect to this. There is a law enforcement aspect. But we have really failed, it seems to me, in the Bush administration. Uh, and commendably, as I said, the Obama administration is really focusing on this hearts and minds struggle that we've got to engage in. And, and we certainly can, because we can't kill and capture every terrorist, as Rumsfeld, of all people, famously acknowledged in a memo, we have to get smarter about how it is that we can counter the narrative. And we certainly can engage in security measures that perversely serve to create more terrorists. And so it seems to me that we've got to come up with a balance. You know, I'll just close by saying this. George Kennan, the terrific Cold War strategist, was so right at the end of that famous long cable in saying the the only way that ultimately the United States in general and the West, the United States in particular, the United States and the West can be defeat it would be to pursue the communists in a way that is contrary to our own values, to become like them. And the same is true for us here. I think it is possible for us to balance security and liberty. And so, just quickly, I have in my own mind a calculus that I go through whenever I try to evaluate a given security measure. And my calculus is, does the gain in security outweigh the diminution in liberty? To me, I'll give just two quick examples at opposite extremes. Thanks to Richard Reed, we all now take off our shoes at airports, and none of us likes to do it. But to me, that's a small price to pay in terms of inconvenience if it prevents the next shoe bomber in the absence of any really good technology right now that prevents us from having to do that. At the opposite extreme, and this gets back to something Mike alluded to earlier, there was that USIA, I think it was today, story a couple of years ago that the NSA was trying to get a record not just of telephone calls, between someone abroad and someone here in the United States, one of whom or both of whom might be connected to terrorism, which of course we want our government to do. But further, NSA was trying to get a record of every single call in the United States. That is obviously counterproductive. That puts more hay on the stack when what we need, as you said, is to to have less hay on the stack to find the needle within. And so we need to strike the right balance, it seems to me, and we can do that. But we can't have perfect security, and we can't have perfect liberty in the age of terror, it seems to me.
5: Jim, can I expand on that? Because that's an extremely important point that Clark just made. Um, and I'm going to expand on it in just a, a couple of respects. It's how much security, well, as you phrased it, Clark, um, uh, how, it, how much is our security improved at the price of, and what you elaborated on, the price of uh, personal liberties? We can expand that way of thinking about any kind of counterterrorist measure and say, how much security do we want to buy at the price of, it might be privacy, it might be personal liberty, it might be the convenience of the traveling public, it might be monetary costs. It often is monetary costs. It might be costs in blood and treasure for military operations overseas, as in Afghanistan. The question that ought to be asked in each one of these endeavors, if it is being conducted in the name of counterterrorism, is how much additional security are we buying at the price of all those things, not just personal liberty. And then the other point I want to make as, as an expansion of what, what Clark said is this puts into perspective a lot of the things that were hashed over last week with regard to the you know, failures of the intelligence and security services and so on and names going on watch lists, all that. This is not simply a, a tradecraft or administrative matter for Intelligence or security agencies. It is a policy issue. Uh, it is a policy issue in terms of what criteria we want to use to move, you know, some of those half million names from the TIDE database to the databases that really make a difference with regard to people getting secondary screening or being denied a seat on an airplane altogether. Because that gets—that's just another subset of the larger question of how much security do we want to buy at the price of, in this case someone's ability to fly or, or, or to fly without getting, uh, getting hassled. One of the um, most encouraging things I heard or read in the uh, president's directive last week was uh, the, the part about, I can't remember the exact language, but it was basically clarifying the criteria for moving names from one list to another. Good thing for the president to focus on, because that's not just something that NCTC can do or the DNI can do. That is a policy issue to reflect the policymakers' sense of how much security the American people want to buy at the price of something else.
0: As we continue, I want to start to focus on the future. What should the Obama administration be doing for the next, for the rest of the term and, and however uh, far President Obama's service goes? Priscilla? I, I
3: just want to jump in here and, and just, again, kind of <clears throat> in, on, in a cautionary way. Um, Suggest that there are not very many prices that the public will not pay, unfortunately, for safety. <laughs> um, it, and again, this is I, I'm not I'm not in any way disagreeing with the content of the arguments that I'm hearing. I'm just reflecting on the research that. We've looked at in terms of how to talk about these. To issues. me, I've
0: been I've been intrigued by the my sense that there is resistance to the whole body scanners, which are, are, are an obvious in one sense obviously an, uh, an improvement in security, though marginal. Um, but but
3: there's no public resistance. The public is 80 percent, 85 percent in favor of full body scans.
5: So I'm hearing from I'm hearing from. Right. A, a it, it's a matter of changing moods. I mean, on, on the business about what names should go on no-fly list or special scrutiny list, there were complaints before, just yeah. within the last couple of years, that too many names are being put on.
3: Right. So, so it's, a, a, it's a, a matter of changing fear.
5: moods. If the last scary incident happened three weeks ago, then we're all in favor of loading all kinds of names on the list. If it's been a few years that have gone by since the big, scary incident, then we're going to start grumbling about how many names get on the list.
2: And also I think it's about the information that the public gets. I mean, you know, every salesman from every body scanner company has been on the news over the last two weeks saying this is the answer, where a British study last year said it is not and said it would not identify these specific things, powders, liquids, and plastics. So if, if the public got the information that, that this body scanner machine would not be any addition in security and will show you naked. Do you still want it?
3: And that, that's what, I've, that's it, what it I was going to say, you. would be a much different too, conversation. Right. Well, so it's that, a matter
2: of getting the right information. Having
3: the the, a the debate on the basis of effectiveness is a more powerful right. foundation. And another foundation for the debate is the nature in which these measures are counterproductive. And that's where I think you're getting, both Clark and Paul are getting at the notion of what do you lose by taking some of these measures. And, and I, guess, I guess I would emphasize the importance of spelling that out because as long as it's left as a trade-off between something and safety, rights and safety, liberties and safety, privacy and safety, the majority will conclude that it's preposterous to ask someone to put those other things before safety. So if you're going to make that argument, and I believe there is that argument to be made, it's important to connect the dots and help people understand how it is that the costs of some of these measures do not uh, actually uh, may outweigh the benefits. So I, I would just make an argument, please, for, for, um, for connecting the dots and not just asserting it.
0: Let me ask a, a question that hasn't um, yet arisen or an issue area that I think hasn't yet arisen, uh, and that's that's the communications. Clark said, talked about countering the narrative, and and the narrative now is carried worldwide on the internet through videos. This this event will will be watched around the world by people who are keenly interested. Um, we have we have a different problem than we did ten years ago or fifteen years ago, much less forty or fifty years ago, in in uh, speaking to the world. Uh, how how do we address that? knowing that everything we say, literally here, but especially um, the administration and, and political leaders, everything is perceived around the world. What's the right What's the right thing to do? How should we change our behavior in light of the fact that we're speaking not just to domestic audiences, but key international audiences that may have our interests uh, not, a, not always at heart?
1: Could, could I defer to my colleagues to answer that, and then at some point, not necessarily now, but at your direction at some point, try to answer the other question you posed, and that is, you know what should the administration be doing going forward, and I'd also like to pursue that. And then, and then maybe we'll go down the line and get two minutes each
0: uh, of you on what the administration should be doing. So, to the communications question, then, and, and then our prescriptions.
4: Well, so, I think I'll just add one piece of evidence here to kind of start the the uh, discussion. I recently did a very large national survey in Pakistan uh, with Christine Fair from Georgetown um, and Neil Malhotra from the Stanford Business School, and one of the things we did is we studied support for four specific militant organizations. Uh, Al-Qaeda, the militants fighting in Kashmir, the sectarian militias, and the Afghan Taliban. And one of the really interesting things we found is that once you kind of take account of people's socioeconomic circumstances and their level of education, what they think about the U.S. impact on the world has zero impact on their support for any of those organizations. And, um, you know, for, Al-Qaeda, this is a little bit odd because they're articulating that they're doing something to deal with the U.S. But for the other organizations, this makes perfect sense because all of them are, when they go to their public in Pakistan, are articulating goals about specific things that are very local. And so what we're doing on the world stage is really not sensibly important. And so I think it's very easy for us to think that, uh, you know, how we're perceived and what people think about our actions on the world stage will have a massive impact on kind of uh, terrorism and the propensity of people to do stuff. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence for that.
5: On, on the communication uh, question, Jim, I think the main thing we need to bear in mind in response to the realities that you uh, summarized is just be careful and be aware of, of how much is getting out there. Now, most of that is outside the control of our governmental leaders. So we have... Reactions to things that, say, American televangelists may say, which in in, in some instances have had tremendous negative resonance in the Muslim world, and this isn't anything any of our governmental leaders said. It's not the fault of the Bush administration or the Obama administration. There are some things that get within government where you can be a little more careful. I mean, when uh, General Boykin was uh, speaking in uniform and saying, my God's better than your God, you know, that, that doesn't help and um, you know, a little more discipline when it comes to uh, those sorts of things are appropriate. I believe, as, as far as what you know, governmental leaders themselves can do, that President Obama's Cairo speech, in my personal view, was an outstanding speech. It got right to most of the messages that needed to be heard uh, from the leader of the free world and the leader of the United States, and uh, that part of what he has been trying to do, gets back to one of Clark's comments, I think has been um, very good, very appropriate.
0: Let's, let's turn to prescriptions. Uh, I've, I've laid mine out twice now. Once, once per year, every January 13th, I ask for a counterterrorism strategy from the administration. Um, clearly, my pull with the administration isn't, isn't what it should be. But, uh, but let's go down the line. What, what should the administration be doing to, to set the stage for better um, in the future?
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a terrific question. It merits a lengthy answer. We don't have a lot of time, and I will try to be brief. Just a couple, two or three quick points. But before that, I just wanted to agree with Paul on another point, and that is you know, he's quite right that part of our problem is, and it's the peril of being a democracy. It's much easier in an autocracy and in a dictatorship. But we are whipsawed by public opinion, and if the threat of terrorism seems to be real and imminent because there was a recent attack last week or a couple of weeks ago, then we go to one extreme. And if years pass, then you get books like overblown or terms like overreaction. And You know, we have to, to use this term that we've used again and again, have an adult conversation about terrorism. We have to be adults about it and to recognize that even when it's not an issue staring us in the face in the headlines, it's still, it still ought to be a concern of the average American and a top priority concern for the government. Uh, I also wanted to defend these whole body imaging machines that we've talked about a couple of times here, and you've raised them a number of times. They are not perfect, and there are certain things that they cannot detect. For example, if an explosive had been hidden in a body cavity, it could not detect that. But it is the closest that there is now to a silver bullet it could it, they can by seeing through clothing spot concealed guns and knives hidden on passengers clothing on their bodies they can't detect that what is hidden is an explosive but they can detect that there is some anomaly on the body or attached to the body they would have in this instance noticed that there was something odd on Mr. Abdul Muttalib's person and one would think that noticing that anomaly there would have been a further physical inspection in which case it would have been discovered they had an explosive. So I think we need to couple the deployment of this technology with, with more sophisticated explosive detection technology could certainly talk about that in detail, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And that's, that's in part why you've got this, in addition to the hysteria, of course, why you have this huge public support for it uh, that we've seen in the polls. To answer quickly your question, what should the, the Obama administration do going forward? Let me just focus my comments on the Department of Homeland Security. I think part of what needs to happen is we need to put Homeland Security back in the Department of Homeland Security. Now, what do I mean by that? Part of the reason why DHS is still getting its sea legs seven years after its creation is so much of what the Department of Homeland Security does doesn't have anything to do with homeland security, counterterrorism. Secretary Napolitano spent a lot of her time last year. It's no criticism of her. It was because of a presidential directive that predated her and that the Obama administration continued. So much of her time in the early months of last year were consumed with H1N1 virus. That ought to have been handled by HHS and by the CDC. There's absolutely no nexus to terrorism there. Uh, The administration says, I find this hard to believe politically, I'm not a political analyst, but that uh, they will take up immigration reform at some point this year, irrespective of whether they should or shouldn't, if they do, I would argue that the Department of Homeland Security should not be the point agency for that, and it's been announced that DHS and the Secretary would be the point people for that. Of course, there is more of of a security connection to immigration than is the case for the swine flu. The Department of Homeland Security processes immigration benefits and it enforces immigration law, so obviously they'll have to be involved, they'll have to be consulted, but the security component of immigration is really very small. It is largely overwhelmingly an economic issue, a social, cultural issue. The point is DHS was conceived in the wake of a terror attack to try to prevent the next terror attack. And so counterterrorism ought to be its focus. The second quick point is I worried, you know, I was part of the transition. You know, I was appointed as the inspector general for the Department of Homeland Security at its inception by the Bush administration. And I was the co-chairman of the transition team for the Obama administration for the Department of Homeland Security. So I bring I think appropriately, a nonpartisan perspective to an issue that I think ought to be nonpartisan, that is homeland security. And so one of the things I worried about during the transition was the Obama administration's decision to collapse the Homeland Security Council that the Bush administration created to parallel the National Security Council into the National Security Council. I understood and understand uh, and applaud the rationale for doing it. The reason for doing it was the Bush administration's tendency, wrongly, to to think that the home, homeland security and national security essentially had nothing to do with each other. And they must be, as the Obama administration has recognized, part and parcel of the same thing. That said, it seems to me, unless there is a parallel structure competing with the NSC for the President's attention, that barring a Christmas Day incident, the President is not going to hear as much about our latest vulnerabilities in aviation or maritime or land borders as he is about the latest machinations in Iran or North Korea. And the President, I don't know that he explicitly said this, but he certainly implied that he's going to be much more focused on aviation security and other kind of homeland security issues going forward than was the case beforehand, and if there's any organizational change that needs to happen, and I would just close by saying that before you got here, Paul, I was agreeing with you that the last thing we need is another major organizational change. We created all these organizations after 9-11, and obviously they failed, but if there's to be any organizational change at all, I think the administration ought to rethink the subsuming of uh, HSC into NSC. Excuse me. Um
2: Clark and I disagree on far more than just the body scanners, <laughs> but uh, w- what I- I'd like to focus on what we do agree on, first on that I have tremendous respect for the work he did as Department of Homeland Security Inspector General, and I think that's the one aspect that is completely missing uh, from, our, from all of our counterterrorism effort, is there is no accountability, and you know, that is the big problem in everything, you know, and that is what's causing this failure in communication, is that the American public doesn't have the facts on the table. So it's impossible for them to engage in any meaningful debate about these policies and all these important issues. And I think that's something that this administration needs to address immediately, and they're already a year behind. A top-to-bottom review of every intelligence agency, every intelligence authority, every intelligence practice and procedure to gauge its effectiveness, to gauge whether it's being abused, to gauge whether it's just a complete misuse of resources. Because if we don't understand that, and we can't communicate that, then all these other debates about what works and what doesn't are kind of meaningless because they're without facts. Um, And the second thing we need to do is make sure that our policies and procedures actually do express American values. Tolerance. Transparency, you know, uh, respect for the rule of law and due process. Those things ultimately will keep us stronger and protect us better than any sort of effort to stomp out who we perceive as the bad guys. Um, and and you know, this Christmas incident gives us that opportunity to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, we've been we received a lot of promises from the intelligence community but what is actually happening, what are the actual breakdowns, and let's do a review of this. There's actually a bill in the House uh, that was proposed by uh, Representative Barbara Lee that would create a a congressional body that could do exactly this type of review, and I think that's what's really necessary so we can have the facts on the table and engage in the conversations about the, the areas that we actually disagree once we're all working from the same facts, rather than uh, arguing from our same set of facts, or from different sets of facts. Priscilla Lewis. Um, I
3: I will take as a given that we need, at the level of government, a strategy, a counterterrorism strategy. So my points will go to what we need by way of a communication to and with the American public about our counterterrorism strategy. And I would start by saying that I think a lesson from the last year is that don't overreact while true is not enough. It is about not doing things rather than what we do need to do, think, and feel about this challenge. So I think that is the big challenge, to, to develop a positive agenda that represents a real alternative to the war on terror with all of its potential uh, for abuse. and, and uh, and overreaction. Um, it, and it needs to be a communication, a narrative to be shared with the American public that is as compelling, as easy to think, as a war on terrorism, if at all possible. I know that's a, a very, very high um, bar to imagine uh, from a communication standpoint. It needs to be a narrative that includes all of the profoundly important... Uh, assertions that were made in the Cairo speech, all of the principles that Mike uh, refers to, but that also tells us how a different approach will keep us safe. Uh, and has been keeping us safe. So it needs to calm fears. It needs to promote clear thinking. It needs to enable people to take in facts because as long as the kind of framework for th- for thinking is the war on terrorism, there are facts that will simply not be heard or that will be rejected because they don't fit that frame. Uh, and it needs to be a narrative that is in the hands of everyone who is capable of influencing public thinking at, the, at a significant level <coughs> before the next crisis happens, um, faith leaders, educators, community leaders, members of Congress, the, the fact that there could have been any sense of not being prepared for what to say after something like the Christmas attempt and after evidence emerged of potentially dangerous homeland Sources or or domestic sources of terrorism that that could have been unanticipated or unprepared for in some way is just unimaginable. Those things were so inevitable. Uh, The need to prepare for those things from a communication standpoint is is uh, is uh, critical and and clear to me. Um, And I would just add two more points. One of them being that I think at this point, as opposed to a year or two ago. there really is a challenge of trying to present a narrative that includes and takes account of uh, what's being called the homegrown terrorism threat. Whether that, How real that is, how, whether it's growing or diminishing, it is out there and it is beginning to shape public thinking. Uh, so this new narrative has to take account of that. Um, I would just, and I don't have a recommendation here, I would simply observe that, ironically... The very narrative that helps to promote constructive thinking about how to address international terrorism, the narrative of counter-radicalization, which leads people to think bigger and to think upstream and to think longer term, that very narrative may have some potential to backfire when it comes to thinking about the domestic terrorism threat because it could promote increased public fearfulness about the potential for violence from... Muslim and Arab-American communities. If, there is the, if the thought becomes widespread that any unhappy or disgruntled or alienated young American, Muslim, or Arab uh, is potentially a violent extremist, that could be problematic. In other words, radicalization over there is different from radicalization here, <clears throat> potentially. And then the last point that I would make is, as I look back on... You know, we're talking about a communication strategy for terrorism or a counterterrorism strategy. Those are all very kind of top-down things. I wonder whether there is an opportunity in the coming year for the administration to engage the public in thinking about how it is that we would like to respond to the terrorist threat and to the next crisis. The Obama campaign... You know broke such new ground in terms of engaging people creatively and actively in in this process. Uh, what are the opportunities to reach out to the incredibly diverse American public and draw on the strengths and insights of citizens uh, um, to try to solve this problem and in so doing to unify uh, in some ways our society and build resilience and and uh, uh, in as we confront this threat, so I see some opportunities and some real challenges for the administration.
0: Jacob Shapiro and Paul Piller, if each of you take two minutes, uh, as defined in scientific terms, <laughs> Can I, we'll have about ten minutes for the audience. So Can I really, I really do want to get to them.
4: Please. <laughs> so, so, so I think that my, you know, is the Obama administration. I think the continued aggression uh, against kind of in terms of uh, counterterrorism uh, is great. There was a striking line in the White House report, which is that there was a failure to, and, and now I'm quoting assign responsibility and accountability for the follow-up of high-priority threat streams. That strikes me as an appalling managerial failure. Right? Someone in charge failed to properly organize their team, and I think that person certainly needs to be held to account.
5: Um, <laughs> scientific two minutes. Uh, the last thing we need is, is more commissions of inquiry, <laughs>
3: which,
5: <laughs> which have their own... Um, um, motive to justify their own existence by uncovering problems and proposing fixes even if there are problems and fixes that have been uncovered and proposed many times before. And I think just looking at the at the president's uh, directive last week, you get some idea of how this is a struggle in this case by the administration to come up with any new ideas. I mean mm-hmm. it was those weren't ideas, they were exhortations to sort of do what we've been doing all the time, but just kind of try to do it well, you know. Improve analysis. Uh, make sure somebody's responsible for following up leads. Um, not exactly, you know, fresh thinking. Uh, written counterterrorism strategy. I've never been very high on those sorts of things, Jim. They're a political necessity. They're sort of a retrospective, cover your posterior um, kind of necessity. If something goes wrong, at least if you say, well, I had a strategy, you can point to a document, you're in a much stronger position than not being able to point to such, such a document. Counterterrorism, uh, there are certain, only certain tools that are available. They're available to every administration. There are certain challenges that face every administration. Uh, to the extent that one administration seems to be more reactive than proactive, that's a reality of the business. So I, I don't see beyond what we've already discussed about the very commendable um, change of emphasis that the Obama administration has had with regard to the message as embodied in the Cairo speech, and Priscilla's talked about that. I don't see any major new departures or changes that I would uh, urge.
0: Thank you all. Let's now turn to the audience. We've got about 15 minutes to take your questions. Uh, because of the, the brief time we have, I'm, I'm really not going to tolerate speechifying. Uh, you all belong up here as panelists, but, but we want to hear your questions for, for this panel today. So let's, uh, let's start with that. Um, right there in the back corner of the woman in the, the magenta, per- I'm not good with colors.
6: Yes, you. The Afghan service at the Voice of America. I just wanted to see if we could just widen this discussion out a bit. You've talked about the franchising of al-Qaeda, self-radicalizing individuals. Um, What is the threat, as you look back over the year? How do you evaluate the counterterrorism policy of the administration as it applies to Afghanistan?
5: Well, clearly it's a major emphasis um, with regard to not just going directly after suspected terrorists with things like drone strikes, but now mounting an expanded counterinsurgency in Afghanistan as a whole. Uh, my personal view is that's an overemphasis. It is uh, a political reaction uh, to much of what this president faced. But um, if you want to change of emphasis, that's, that's where it is. It has been so far.
0: We have one down in front here.
7: Thank you very much for your, for your comments, but none of your comments really touched upon... Um, the uh, fact that um, virtually all of the um, terrorist incidents that have occurred have been done in the name of a particular religion. My question is, uh, to what extent um, is there a capability, and this is, uh, I think, especially for Mr. and Mr. Pilar, because you worked in government and you worked in uh, in, the, in the intelligence communities, uh an understanding of why, why some individuals do become radicalized by, by Islam. And uh, if, there's a, if there's enough of an understanding about that, and if so, what do we do about it? Uh, I can just start with that.
2: I, I mean, number one, your premise is, is incorrect. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has documented 75 right-wing right. extremist plots that have either been foiled or accomplished since 9-11. So terrorism is a multifaceted threat to this country. As I said, there was no dirty bomb found anywhere in the world except Maine. You know, a chemical weapon was found in noonday Texas that could have killed 30,000 people. You know, there is a multifaceted threat of terrorism. and, And as Jacob said, you know, since time immemorial, there have been people who have used violence as a means to achieve political goals. And if you look at empirical studies of terrorists, actual terrorists, what most of those have found is that it is not driven by religious fervor or ideology nearly as much as it is by personal experiences, including things like alienation from the community and racism. So if we employ racist policies that alienate certain communities, that's counterproductive. So I think we have to be very careful and work from actual facts rather than, you know, from any political agenda or, or erroneous information.
4: I'll just add one point, which is in surveys of kind of non-terrorists, uh, subscription to uh, elements and in interpretation of Islam that supports the notion of militarized individual jihad is a very good predictor of kind of positive feelings towards terrorist groups, but actually, taking your religion seriously in terms of educating your children and studying it seriously yourself uh, predicts much less support for Al Qaeda and uh, and the Afghan Taliban, which are groups that kind of pervert what might be understood as mainstream uh, doctrine. So it's a complicated issue. It's kind of the details of doctrine that seem to matter, not the fact of a particular religion.
0: How about over here, third row, along the wall, making it difficult for you to get a microphone to him. And- <laughs> Steve Fritzinger from Fairfax. Jim, I like your formulation about um, terrorism having its goal as invoking an overreaction. So I'd like to hear thoughts from the panel on why it is so effective in getting that overreaction. I can understand why cable news channels would behave as they do with the flashy graphics and all that, because it's all about the ratings. But The grown-ups who are in charge should know better. And, uh, Mr. Irvine, uh, you were the one who was most uh, supportive of the idea of a war on terror. I'd especially like to hear um, what you think, the the answer to Jacob's uh, question, what are the
2: pros of that rhetoric?
1: Um, Well, I certainly think that there have been, as I said, instances of overreaction. Um, during the Bush years, actually. I, the, as I said, in Sears, the roundup of Arab Muslim males for for months, for years, was an overreaction. I think Gidmo was an overreaction. I am appalled by the notion of indefinite detention of, of terror suspects. But uh, the fact is, as I said before, that there are terrorists who are determined not just to kill Americans, but to kill us in a catastrophic way with a weapon of mass destruction. And so there must be a, a recognition of that, and there must be an element of a counterterrorism strategy that includes warlike elements, killing people, the military, the use of the military. Um, and I, I guess the final thing I'd say is that uh, we need to redouble our efforts, and I hope and expect, as I said also, that this Christmas Day incident will compel us to do that, to close the vulnerabilities that continue to exist in our aviation system, in our maritime system, in our border system. The fact that we can't prevent every single terror attack and the fact that we can't overreact should not allow us to prevent ourselves from closing those vulnerabilities that can be closed and from reducing the risk to as close to zero as it is possible to do.
2: And, and, and I think that's an excellent question, if you don't mind, um, and and gets to something that that Clark said earlier and then just repeated, that the goal of terrorists is to create a ter- catastrophic attack. That's not the goal. That's the methodology. Their goals are political. The methodology they use is terror because they know that creates that overreaction. So you know what we have to understand. We have to look at at what the difference is between their goals and their methods. And if we look at their methods, and if our, our homeland security efforts are to counter their methods, then maybe we're missing a piece of this puzzle that we could address without war.
1: Could I just respond to that just quickly? They've got a couple of goals. We've got to understand that the initial goal, of course, is to kill people. We can't pretend that that is not part of what they're trying to do. They are also trying to multiply the effect of the number of people killed by terrorizing everybody that they don't succeed in killing. So it's really both. It's not either or.
2: Well, I think it's a method and not the goal. You know, I, I mean, our, our goal isn't to have war around the world. That's the method we use to try to create a more peaceful and pro-American... Let's touch
5: on it briefly and then go back to yeah. our audience. 10- second interjection. This is another illustration of the hazard of vocabulary that collapses things. When we talk about they or the terrorists... It covers a wide range of motivations, um, and that's a source of confusion rather than clarification.
4: Jacob, quickly, anything? Uh, just that if, if you look at kind of the correspondence that goes on within these groups, what they're seeking is not to kill people, but to kill the right number of people to achieve political goals. And this is often a matter of great debate within groups. Another question?
0: Down here. And then I'll head to the back.
6: Hello? Okay. This is a narrowly drawn issue that's difficult to discuss without reference to the context. So that I don't do speechifying. I want to say that my mindset is, is formed by Tanner, Kilcullen, and Mead. Um, and then ask a question about, um, about the, the salience of the, of the Islam notion in the context of competition between gods um, in, 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 in extending Western global hegemony. So, um, I, it, it, you, I don't see how we can talk about this without talking about the Wahhabis and the um, uh, and and their support of the expansion of the Taliban in that region, and I and and, and the, the um, they have a particular, I believe, distortion of Islam that they're using for political purposes. I think that Priscilla's um, uh, formulation taking several several steps back from from the particulars of terrorism is an important approach so i want to hear what the panelists think about about a kind of a dialectic um, that says that you 've got um, you 've got the tribalism um, thesis you 've got the Taliban antithesis, and is perhaps secularism the synthesis of all of this that American policy could focus on could develop a dialogue about dialogue conversation in the American public about and and then develop a kind of a tolerism tolerance for for the for the um, the ter- the, 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 our responses to terrorism, our engagements in Afghanistan, and all of that, because it seems to me that that's the context that we're operating in.
0: Panel, <laughs> it's a big problem. It's a big big set of issues. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
5: I, I think the president said most of what needs to be said in Cairo, but uh, beyond that, uh, you referred to like. Wahhabis. All right, we're talking about Saudis. They, we call them Wahhabis. They call themselves Unitarians. Um, but don't uh, be confused. With <laughs> yeah. There, there, you're getting into things like policies of the Saudi government, which have changed greatly for the better with regard to counterterrorism uh, over the last several years, and specifically since 2003, when they started getting, yeah. of course, and the Saudis are taking that extremely seriously.
0: Let's go back up here, just along the rail.
1: Freelance Correspondent, we have a a former CIA here and have a former FBI person there. I would like each of you to talk about how these two agencies can cooperate in this uh, uh, global counterterrorism. And also from your observation, what are they doing now? Thank you.
2: Um, you know, I, I I actually believe that a lot of the, you know, the agency turf stuff is, is overblown in a lot of ways. That that you know, if you get down to the street level, even before nine eleven, there actually is a lot of cooperation between the agencies, and everybody feels like they're on the same team. Um, you know, I I think the problem, as as that occurred both in nine eleven and in the the Christmas attack is is the volume of information being collected. The House-Senate Joint Intelligence Investigation of 9-11 said that the problem was that the, the significant pieces of information were lost in the vast streams of data collected. Well, those vast streams have become roaring rivers with with the expansion of the authority to collect without suspicion. And the management of information within the agencies has not changed significantly to where they can identify those informations in the massive information. So that's really what we should be getting at, is how do we make sure that our collection efforts are properly targeted and that the information we collect is properly followed up on. And I don't think it really matters whether it's an FBI agent or a CIA agent or two of them sitting together in the National Counterterrorism Center is is the methodology.
5: I I agree completely with Mike. Uh, People at the working level at agencies like that do not, as their first (coughs) act, when they come to work in the morning, look at the org chart and say, hmm, I'm not part of this agency or I'm not under the DNI so I don't have to cooperate with it. No, of course. The the, the, the cooperation takes place uh, regardless of what the org chart says. My only other point is some of the more uh, better publicized instances of turf squabbles uh, such as the one between the director of the CIA and the director of national intelligence as to who should appoint the overseas intelligence reps were a direct result of the last so-called fix we had which was to create the Office of DNI in the first place. It never would have happened if we just stuck with the old organization.
0: Let's take one more question before we conclude with this panel. Right here, middle, uh, middle row on the aisle.
8: Thank you. Are we on? Okay. Uh, my question deals with uh, technology and airport and fears and economics as a result of it. I, I think that taking down a plane is is much more than just an, an annoyance. It's it's potentially an enormous economic uh, potential catastrophe if people don't fly. Now, the Christmas bo- uh, almost bombing uh, uh, showed us that uh, at least in the airport part of it, we don't have the mechanisms to detect things. I I I, I'm, I worry very much about. Uh, this full-body scan, and that's the only way of detecting things, when terrorist's judicious use of body cavities uh, in the future, to me is like, how do you detect that? And uh, what are we doing along those lines when we get right to the very end that uh, uh, a chaotic situation is there if we can't really detect... uh, well enough, people getting on planes. What uh, It's just a bothersome thing. How do you feel about that? Is that a real worry? or? I
1: could take that quickly. Um, there, you're quite right, as I've mentioned, that one of the limitations of this whole body imaging technology is its inability to spot concealed weapons in the body cavity. And we know that drug dealers and drug traffickers, for example, have been using that methodology for a long time, and it's only a matter of time, it seems to me, before terrorists do that said, in the typical American fashion, there are technologists and businesses, mostly small businesses, working right now to plug that gap. And I just the other day was reading about technology that purports to be able to do that. The larger point, though, is that DHS in, in particular, the security community in general, um, TSA in particular, particular, tends to be reactive. We tend to focus on the last gap, we close that gap, and we kind of go back to sleep until another incident happens, revealing another gap, and we address that gap. One of the things that we need to start doing is to get ahead of the curve by trying to anticipate uh, additional methods that could be used against us and closing the gaps before those gaps are exploited. Commendably, among the many commendable things the President said during the course of these pronouncements was saying that um, TSA, DHS are going to redouble their efforts to work with, for example, DOE in our national labs to develop these kinds of technologies. Uh, The final thing I'd say though is, and this is a point that Paul made and I think I too made earlier, and that is that all that said, we need to recognize that there are an infinite number of targets, an infinite number of ways in which those targets can be exploited and we can never have 100 percent security. But, again, I close by my continuing mantra, which is kind of my theme, and that is that it's not an excuse for doing what we can do. And so I think we need to redouble our efforts to address this vulnerability because, obviously, it's one that's going to be exploited sooner rather than later. And
2: our, our position at the ACLU is, is that the first test has to be the uh, ability of this to actually improve security uh, against the current threats. And it is very unclear whether this body scanner would have identified this bomb the way it was hidden with the materials that it was used, not to mention the body cavities. So it doesn't pass the first test. In the second test, if ceramic knives become the method of choice, you know, then maybe body scanners are a more uh, appropriate methodology. But there are other, other technologies, including trace explosive detectors, that are actually in use. You know, you may have been at the airport and seen the guy with the wand who rubs inside your carry-on bag and, and sticks the end of the wand into a machine to test. So we can invest in that technology that doesn't have that huge privacy setback and could be actually more effective. So rather than doing a knee-jerk, let's throw millions of dollars at this technology, we know the terrorists can be because that's the most important thing. To hear. It, it was widely publicized that Amsterdam Airport had the body scan machines and had employed them in 2007. So that Al-Qaeda chose to go through, or Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula. Whoever these terrorists chose to go through Amsterdam, knowing that information is a pretty good sign. They were confident they could beat that machine.
1: If I could just add, the fact is, those machines, even though they had them, weren't used, and I think the terrorists knew that as well. It wasn't that they didn't think know. they were
0: effective. It was that they. Knew as they I used. mentioned at the outset, when we break, we'll just take a few minutes to reset the stage. So don't go far. If you have to freshen up, you can stand and stretch your legs. But but we'll, we want to return just in a few moments. To hear from Daniel Benjamin. Before we do that, uh, I, I want to thank our panel for what I think has been an adult conversation.
3: Please join me in thanking Paul yeah. thank you.